There's an old saying that goes, Jazz was born in New Orleans and traveled up the Mississippi River to Chicago. There's some truth in that, but from there, jazz spread around the world, freely crossing geographical and cultural boundaries. Part of this was a natural process of dissemination via records, radio, and touring musicians. But in the 1950s, the U.S. State Department made a conscious choice to use jazz as a cultural weapon dispatching musicians such as Louis Armstrong to the Congo and Dizzy Gillespie into Pakistan to burnish America's image. I'm David Gorin, and this is Jazz Stories from Jazz at Lincoln Center. On this edition, we'll hear excerpts from a March 2009 jazz talk at the House of Swing about jazz and cultural diplomacy with Dr. Penny Von Eschen, author of the book Satmo Blows Up the World, Jazz Ambassadors Play the Cold War, and the late Joe Moraney, a clarinetist who played in the last edition of Louis Armstrong's All-Stars. The moderator is Dr. Louis Porter. Let's start with the State Department part of this and tell us why did the United States government decide to send jazz musicians overseas? Okay, let's go back to the 1950s and the United States sees itself as in a uh, total Cold War and a cultural Cold War with the Soviet Union. And the Soviets were very active sending art around the world, um, sending the Bolshoi, their great ballet, many forms of art. And um, President Eisenhower had a long interest in culture and what they also called propaganda. He'd been in, from World War II, he was deeply involved in um, in this through the war. So he was particularly concerned that the Europe and the rest of the world thought the United States was barbaric. He said, they just think of us as a gadget civilization. They think of us as cars, and um, we have to show people that we have art. Above all, Eisenhower and his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, are concerned with what they call America's Achilles heel, America's race relations. Colonialism starts to crumble and collapse in World War II. There's all sorts of new nation states formerly colonized in Africa, throughout Asia, the Middle East, and they want to appeal to these countries and show that they are not racist and are not like the European colonizers. So they, in essence, they say, well, we can't compete with the Bolshoi or European or Soviet classical music, but the Russians can't claim jazz. Right. Not that they didn't try to on occasion. Oh. <laughs> Did you know about that? Once in the early 60s, yeah. when the, the Russian government was trying to say they invented everything first. Actually, right, at one right. point, they even tried to say they invented jazz first. Yeah. But that's interesting. So does that mean that sending jazz overseas is a political statement of some kind? Well, for the State Department, it was certainly a political statement and an overt reaching out in that era to both people in the Eastern Bloc states, the Soviet Union. Um, there were relatively few tours in the early years to any of these places because they simply couldn't get in, but it was overtly reaching out to the Middle East, Africa, Asia, where they had started, so certainly. And on the, the musicians had a very different take on that. It was also, I think, a very political statement to many of the musicians, I, not necessarily all, who saw going on the tours as a way to promote civil rights. People like Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. Um, Randy Weston is here with us tonight. I want to just note. Nice. And uh, really, really, in 
has seen State Department tours in West Africa, so and he could tell you more about this than I. But That's right. and in um, a way to show the world the you know dignity and sort of wonderful things about Black American music and culture. And you know these these tours start a full nine years before Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act. So this is in the the throes of um, upheaval over civil rights at the height of violent resistance to Black American civil rights movement in the South. Right, so. because the first one was 1957, was it? 1956. The, the first tour, and not to move away from civil rights, because it was a big theme of the tour, but the very first performance of all the hundreds of performances that were followed was in Abaddon, Iran. So this tells us something else about the tours. Um, Abaddon is an oil workers town. It's an oil town. So it wasn't, they didn't go to Tehran. The uh, Dizzy Gillespie and his band had to stay in oil workers barracks because there wasn't hotels or any other place to stay. But from the beginning, the United States politically is trying to shore up relationships with friendly people or allies in the um, oil-rich states, in the mineral-rich um, new nations of southern Africa. But again, starts at 56, and that, that takes us in that direction. Very interesting. But immediately goes into um, civil rights controversies. So civil rights, politics, all this is involved. Now, Joe, you have done a lot of playing internationally. Uh, but you also specifically were on a State Department tour with Louis Armstrong. Where did you go, and was there anything political about it, or is it just playing music, and music is just pure sound, and so forth and so on? Well, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong started to go to, to Europe right after the war, and uh, he was a phenomenon. I mean, he was a force of nature. Everybody knew him. And uh, for instance, in the, in the 30s, he never played in Germany nor did Coleman Hawkins. And uh, that was, if anything, a pent-up interest, a desire to hear Louis Armstrong. And so there was a tremendous thing. And his going on a State Department tour, was it was more important that he went on a tour to make money for Joe Glazer. And, Joe Glazer was his manager. Yeah, Joe Glazer was his manager. But he really didn't need State Department tours. He did it under Joe Glazer's aegis, and they made money. And his being there was, he didn't have to talk politics or do anything, it was boom. Uh, I only did one with him in Africa. Okay. Uh, we left from uh, Paris, and even that's a story, hanging out with him at a bar. <laughs> at a bar in Paris? <laughs> Why? What was so funny about it? Well, it was at the airport, a gorgeous like, VIP lounge. It's me and Tyree Glenn and Pops. Tyree and we, we, we sit down at the bar, and we have what we're going to have. And... Uh, we drink our drink, and we have like a four-hour wait or something. So another round, and I go to reach for my money, and he says, no, 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 this is on me. He says, Louis, I'm on me. So we're there four hours or something, and, and you know, he asks for the bill, and the waiter comes over and smiles. He said, you know, I, I don't know whether he said l'addition, but, you know, the waiter understood. And, and he said something and put a paper down, and Louis takes out a big wad of money, and he starts putting him down. <laughs> he says, I don't know how much it is, but when he starts to laugh, I put down one more. <laughs> it, was always, it was always like that. That's one way to know. He was just one way to tell. So, so we get on the plane. We go to Tunisia. Don't try Tunisia, that these days. And, All right, go and, ahead. And the reason we had the four or five hour wait, it was a long time. Was so the plane the, to Tunisia? Tunisia, okay. yeah. It was, it was Air France, I remember. And this that, is for the State Department, this one? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And... and uh, uh, there was no special security or anything, I'll That's tell you interesting. that. No, no, it was anyhow, we didn't all get on the first plane, and Lewis chose to stay behind, so I stayed with him and Tyree and the, the doctor or something. So the first batch of the band is already in Tunisia, 
And we get there late. And uh, they said, oh, you should have been here. There were like, all kinds of people were here and stuff to greet. And who's there? The secretary of the U.S. Embassy, mm, this young woman. Okay. Yeah, maybe a 35-year-old woman or something. And uh, I go over and I introduce myself. She came over and stuff, and she was crying. <laughs> she said, Louis Armstrong is the best thing that ever happened to American and Tunisian relationship. Is that to the right? relationship. You know, just his arriving, you know. So we got there, and, and we were treated royally, and we, we, the dressing room was a tent pitched on the sand somewhere out, outdoors. And we get on the stand, and I got up. And I'm talking about the power he had with people okay. to, to attract. I get on the stand, and I look out. And the supposed biggest uh, Guinness Book of Records jazz concert was in Budapest in 1965, I think, something like that when Lewis did a tour of Eastern Europe. Okay. He never played Russia, by the way, Lewis Armstrong. So I look out, that concert in Budapest is something like 90,000 people, something like that. Well, I get on his bandstand, I look out, and arranged in quadrangles. There's a group right in front of us, you know, rah, 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 and there's another smaller one, and there's a smaller one, and a smaller one until you could almost get down to a dot. They, they were that far away, mm. all amplified, and all with, with, with guards and everything, you know, that, that was a, a mob like that. I have never seen a crowd like that in my life. That's I was frightened. And the, the, the gal from the U.S. Embassy said it was a, Best thing that ever happened for America and Tunisia. And that was uh, 67? 67, 67, yeah. 67. And, um, what, uh, I mean, there were a lot of people there, but also, how did they respond? What kind of response did you get? Well, I always wondered about that, because if you're a Tunisian, what could you know about jazz? I mean, you're not collecting uh, hot jazz records or right. cool jazz or whatever. In those days, at least. But, but there was a tremendous response. Okay. I mean, a tremendous response. But, but I, I, as I say, I don't really... What was going on in their heads, I don't know. They, this was an American. Okay. I think that he was a black American, a, a man of color, let's put it that way, because okay. these, these people weren't black, they were of color. So that, I think that resonated with him. Interesting. And the fact that that was the person who was representing the United States on yeah. a particular yeah. occasion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And, and he, wasn't, he wasn't political about it. I mean, he, I never, I, he didn't particularly talk about politics and stuff, you know. It was like... Uh, uh, he did it his own way, you know. Right. He, he didn't have to talk about that. All he had to do was be his beautiful self and play and sing. That was enough. The late Joe Marini talking about being on a State Department-sponsored tour with Louis Armstrong in 1967. We also heard from Dr. Penny Von Eschen, author of the book Satmo Blows Up the World, Jazz Ambassadors Play the Cold War. The moderator was Dr. Lewis Porter. You can find all of our jazz stories at jalc.org and on iTunes. Jazz Stories is produced at Murray Street by myself, David Gorin, with Alexa Lim and Stephen Rapp. Support comes from Jazz at Lincoln Center. Consider becoming a member and experiencing America's great jazz art at Rose Hall, our house of swing. You'll find schedules and more at jalc.org.